you'll take your Bible with me this evening, if you'll open to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 8. We started this last week, and we didn't get very far, did we? We may not get very far tonight either. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to try to move along so that we can try to get as much of Psalm 8 done as we possibly can. Last week I talked to you about how uh, there are those who are trying to put evolution and creation together. They want the evolutionary theory to be able to fit into the creation story and the creation story to be able to accommodate evolutionary theory. They call it theistic evolution. It's not the godless kind of evolution where there is no God and it's all just happenstance, just a a matter of time and chance. Uh, They want it to be something that God has divinely guided and God has divinely directed. And we talked in detail last week about why that's, that's not possible. But one of the things I didn't get to do was to read to you something that comes from Wayne, Wayne Grudem. Uh, Dr. Grudem is a respected uh, theologian. Uh, we might not agree with him on every point of theology, uh, but you know, you learn from everybody, don't you? And he is a respected theologian. And he has written a book along with several others in the philosophy department and in the science department and it's all together in one book called Theistic Evolution, a Scientific, Philosophical, and Theological Critique. There's actually two books. There's one that's the entirety of everything, and there's another that's a condensed version. I have them both. And one of them is very detailed to read. One is a more uh, easily read than the other. But they also bring together all of the understanding that God created in six literal days just as the Scripture says that philosophically, scientifically, and theologically all of those fit together, that you don't have to come up with millions and billions of years in order to, uh, to arrive at the creation story and somehow accommodate the evolutionary theory of our day. But in the process, uh, he gave 12 statements of what it would mean if we believed in theistic evolution, that evolution was true and that God just guided that process and somehow all of that fits into those six days that are, that are found in Genesis 1 and 2. And I thought I'd take a moment and read them to you. Number one, according to theistic evolution, Adam and Eve were not the first human beings and perhaps they never even existed. Number two, Adam and Eve were born from human parents They were not created from the dust of the earth. Number three, God did not act directly or specifically to create Adam out of dust from the ground. I just mentioned that. Number four, God did not directly create Eve from a rib taken from Adam's side. Number five, Adam and Eve were never sinless human beings. Think about that one. How do you deal with that in Romans chapter 5? Number six, Adam and Eve did not commit the first human sins, for human beings were doing morally evil things long before Adam and Eve. Number seven, human death did not begin as a result of Adam's sin, for human beings existed long before Adam and Eve, and they were always subject to death. Number eight, not all human beings have descended from Adam and Eve, Uh, For there were thousands of other human beings on earth at the time that God chose two of them as Adam and Eve. Number nine, God did not directly act in the natural world to create different kinds of fish, birds, and land animals. In other words, God didn't specifically create these. They just evolved into the process. How do you fix that? 
Number 10, God did not rest from his work of creation or stop any special creative activity after plants, animals, and human beings appeared on the earth. Hmm. Number 11, if theistic evolution is true, God never created an originally very good natural world in the sense of a world that was a safe environment, free of thorns and thistles and similar harmful things. And number 12, after Adam and Eve sinned, God did not place any curse on the world that changed the workings of the natural world and made it more hostile to mankind. In other words, to accommodate evolutionary theory with the creation story in order to have God guiding this evolutionary process means you have to abandon a huge amount of detail from the book of Genesis. And you have to say, all of that couldn't have been true. All of that must not have been true. It must have all been just sort of a theory. It must have all been a story that was being told. But in fact, it wasn't a story that was just being told. The reality is that God did create. The earth is not as old as mankind, the the scientists of today, mankind wants it to be. And God created everything in six literal days. I could quote to you from Walter Kaiser Jr., who's an Old Testament scholar, uh, some of the things he says about Genesis 1 and 2. I think I'll bypass that this evening. Just simply to say that to accept evolution is to create all kinds of theological problems. It is to, uh, to commit theological suicide, if you will. Um, we had a man that used to come to church here. He was a, a very kind man, a very nice man, if you're talking to him face-to-face and in his company. Uh, but after he would leave, if he heard something in the service that he didn't agree with, he would always write me. Any of the other preachers, when they would preach, if he heard something he didn't agree with, he would write them and he would tell them. And the the place where he most often disagreed, he was an adjunct professor at Marshall, and where he most often disagreed with any of us was over the creation account. I I can't tell you how many times he told me, he said, if you don't give up uh, this idea of a six-day creation, you're going to turn all of the college students away from Christ and Christianity and the Bible. And he didn't use those exact words, but that's what he was saying. He, he said to me, you're, gonna, you're, you're, you're committing uh, intellectual suicide. Those were his words. You're committing intellectual suicide, meaning that you won't be able to talk to these students who already know and already believe what they think is settled fact, and they'll never listen to you because you want to at least accommodate their evolutionary theory into the creation account. On one occasion, I responded to him, and I said, I might be committing intellectual suicide, but to accept evolution in any portion, as far as I'm concerned, is to commit theological suicide. It is to deny the Bible. It is to set aside 12 statements. By the way, the book that, uh, that uh, Dr. Grudem wrote goes on, and he talks about all 12 of these. He goes through each of those 12 and shows how they have to be true uh, because they're the foundation of all of Scripture. So the point is this. We're talking about creation in Psalm 8. It's a creation psalm. Uh, You're going to have to do away with vast portions of your Bible if you accept evolution and you deny creation. You're going to have to do away with Acts 17, 24, and 26, Romans 1, 20, Colossians 1, 16, Revelation 4, 11, uh, Revelation 10, 6. You have to do away with Exodus 20, 11, and Romans 8, 18 to 24, and Job 38, 4 to 9, and on and on the list of scriptures go. I choose to believe God. 
I choose to believe that God created in six literal days. And when you stop and you think about it, when you think about how David was thinking about creation, it's no wonder that he says at the very first of this psalm and the very end of this psalm. Notice at verse, verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And then he finishes the same way, verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. What is David doing between these two statements? David is looking up at creation, and he's looking around at the creation of God, and he is saying, God is great. God is excellent. God is powerful. His words and his works, we cannot deny. This couldn't just happen. There had to be a God who brought it into existence. Now, between those two statements in Romans chapter 8, he's going to give you two, uh, two verses, if you will, in this psalm. The first one finishes up verse 1 into verse 2, and then verses 3 to 8. I want you to follow along with me. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? Can we stop there for just a moment? Do you see the purpose why he's writing this psalm? He's looking at creation. He's realizing that there's a God who created all of this, his God that created all of this, and he did it exactly as he said he would do it. And David is feeling infinitesimally small at this moment. He's seeing how small he really is in the great sphere of the creation of the Almighty God. And that's exactly what creation should cause all of us to do. Instead of coming to uh, what we see around us and saying, oh, I understand all of this, I figured it all out, science has already explained everything, it should cause us to stop and say, wait a minute. For this to come into existence, there had to be intelligence, there had to be an architect, there had to be an engineer, there had to be a plan, there had to be a God who created it all. And if there's a God who can create all of this, how small I must really be. And yet, he visits me. And yet, he is with me. And yet, he never leaves me. And yet, he never forsakes me. Do you see his point? Do you see what he's doing here? You go on, verse 5, for you've made him a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor, talking about mankind. Verse 6, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. Now, let me just point out some things in these final 15 minutes that I want you to notice. I want you to see the downward trend of this psalm. It starts above the heavens where God dwells, above the circle of this earth, this universe where God dwells in verse 1. It moves to the heavens in verse 3. That's what's around us and what we can observe and what we can see. When you get to verses 4 and 6, it moves to mankind himself. Uh, he says, when I consider your hands, the work of your fingers, what is man? What is man that you're mindful of him? It moves from mankind to domesticated animals. 
Uh, by the time that you get a little further down, when he talks in verse 6, you have dominion over the works of my hands, sheep, verse 7, oxen, the beast of the field. And it ends where? In verse 8, it ends in the sea. Did you know that those who lived in this day thought of the sea as a place of chaos? It was the least hospitable place on the planet to mankind. And it still is to some degree, isn't it? Have you ever seen those uh, on the Weather Channel and the other kinds of channels, the Smithsonian Channel and others, that document things that happen out at sea to seagoing vessels when storms come in or uh, when there's other things that go on on sea? I mean, what is that ship amidst that huge, enormous sea? Nothing. It'll toss it to and fro. It's nothing. And so the point here he's making is that God comes down to us. The greatest display of God coming down to us is his son, Jesus. Jesus came down to us. There was no other way we would have ever fully understood God if Jesus had not come. He was the full embodiment of the Father living in our midst. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus is the perfect display and the perfect explanation of what God is like. But do you see how the psalm moves from above the heavens to the heavens to mankind to the domesticated animals right down to out to sea to the most chaotic place in the world? But who is above all of that? Who created all of that? Who oversees all of that? It's God. How excellent is your name in all the earth in verse 1. How excellent is your name in all the earth as he comes to verse 2 or verse 9, excuse me. I want you to notice something else, that in spite of the fact that God is so great and so awesome and so wonderful and so magnificent and so great that we can't fully understand him, this psalm points out to us that God nevertheless relates to us personally. Please just notice the personal pronouns. Verse 2, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your Uh, Because of your enemies, verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, he goes on, you have ordained, verse 4, you are mindful of him. At the end of verse 4, you visit him. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him, verse 6. You have made him to have dominion. You have uh, put all things under uh, his feet. Do you see it? You know, normally you wouldn't think of him referring to to God in these kinds of pronouns because if God is so excellent and so beyond who he is, and yet he realizes that this God has come down to us, and this God wants to relate to us, and this God can be addressed by us. We talk to him about his greatness and who he is and his magnificence, but nevertheless, he is our friend, and he is our Savior. And he is the one who walks with us through the course of this life. And though the firmament impresses the psalmist, he's not overawed to the point that the personal dimension of faith is lost. You say, how could I ever know a God so great as this? Well, listen, he wants us to see the creation and see how infinitesimally small we are. But then he wants us to understand that he wants to have fellowship and communion with us. He wants to, have, he wants to walk this life with us. And he did it in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I point out a third thing to you? I love the way he says it in verse 3. He says, when I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, 
Do you notice he didn't say the work of your hand? He didn't say the work of your arms. He didn't say the work of your shoulders or of your back. He says the work of your fingers. You know why? Because the creation of God didn't require God to have all of that muscle to do it. The creation of God, he just did it with his fingers. Are you all with me? He he just did it with his fingers. You mean he's that big? He's that great that the creation, all that there is, he just did it with his fingers? Yeah, he did it with his fingers. I don't know about you, but I can do very few things with my fingers. Some things, but not many things. And the things that are really hard to do, it takes more than just my fingers to accomplish them, right? It takes your muscle, it takes your hands and your arms and your back and your shoulders. But the point is that this God is so great that the creation is just a matter of his fingers. His fingers just do it. Um, I don't know if you've seen the, uh, the news about uh, the, the newest telescope that they have that they sent into space, and they're now seeing things that they hadn't seen before out in space. And apparently there's a black hole in one particular area of where they're looking with this new telescope. They don't know what's beyond that black hole. I can't tell you everything that's beyond that black hole, but I can tell you who is beyond that black hole. I can tell you that God is the one who's beyond that. In all of that, though we're just now beginning to see just a little tiny portion of it, it was all just the work of his fingers. It was all just, just put it together like this. God is a God who is great. How excellent is your name in all the earth. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. I want to point out a fourth thing to you. I love it, the fact that God says to us that he has placed mankind in dominion over the works of his hands. You notice verse 6? Or let's go back to verse 5. For you have made him, that is man, a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him. Uh, These are, by the way, royal terms, to be crowned. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. When God created in the very beginning, everything was under the control of Adam. Adam and Eve. How did they lose that? They they lost that through sin. They lost that dominion through sin. What's going to happen one day? Today we're living in a world where we want to bring things under control. We'd like to bring creation under our control. What's going to happen one day? God's going to bring it all under his control. It's going to be his kingdom on earth. Then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth where we're going to live forever and ever. And what What uh, the Garden of Eden was intended to be, that new heaven and earth will be forever and forever. Can you imagine living in a place like that? Can you imagine how wonderful and how magnificent it would be to live in a place like that? And yet, there's something to be said here for all of you who are ecologists, all of you who love uh, nature. It is true that God has given us a stewardship of the creation that's around us that we have a responsibility. I don't believe the earth is going to be destroyed in the next 10 years. I don't think we're going to destroy this planet in the next 15 years. I think Al Gore has lost his mind and some of the others. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility. That doesn't mean that we don't have a task, and that task is to be as ecologically, uh, be a good ecological steward as we possibly can. That's what he says here. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. 
Everything's been put under our feet. He's given to us the stewardship of this earth. And while in sin, we have lost some of that. And when Jesus comes back, it will all be regained. We must be careful as well about the creation. I don't know all the answers to all of those problems. I don't think all the answers we're hearing are all the right answers to all those problems. But we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know what I'm saying? Because he has placed creation around us. It is absolutely beautiful. And isn't it disheartening when you ride down a beautiful street and you find a place where somebody has stopped and they've dumped out all of their trash along the side of the road? Isn't that, isn't that disheartening? And sometimes that's what we do. We don't recognize that this creation of God is something that he's given to us. He's given us dominion. We lost part of it in the, in the fall of Adam and Eve, but that dominion was intended to be ours, and we're supposed to be careful about the creation of God and recognize that there may be things that we can do that are helpful things uh, along the way. I think it's interesting that, that it's animals that are dependent on the habitat, but that humans depend on the capacity to create the habitat. That's what he's talking about. The sheep and the oxen, the beast of the field, the birds of the air, they have to have a habitat in which to live. But we have dominion over that habitat, at least partial dominion over that habitat. And therefore, we have to be careful about creating a capacity for that kind of habitat for them to live. Uh, and so I'm not talking here about being uh, an extremist like we hear so much about today, but I am talking about us recognizing we have a stewardship of the earth around us. It's a fascinating psalm, isn't it? It's a psalm of creation. It's a reminder of man's finiteness and his limitations. It's, it's a reminder that God is so great that even the creation of the earth was done with just his fingers. And man, what is man that you're even mindful of him? or the Son of Man, that you would come and visit him? Why would you even pay attention to us when you have created all of these things? And yet, you have given to us a place in your creation. And in that creation, you have given us dominion, some of which we've lost because of sin, but you've given us dominion, and you've allowed us to create, uh, to create a uh, habitat for us in, in which for us to live, and to create a habitat that's safe for others to live. Nevertheless, it's God who created it all. I hope you believe in a God who created everything. I hope you believe in a God who made everything. Uh, the challenge today when you go off, uh, as Reagan is about to do, go off to college, is to listen to all the professors deny all of the Scripture uh, when it comes to the, the Genesis account. I don't know about your school. Please don't misunderstand me. But a lot of schools, they go off to school and they don't stop to remember that there's another explanation. And it's not always the one. It's not going to be the one that's often heard in a classroom. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Verse 9, oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. When we get through tonight, I want you to go out. I want you to look up for a moment. And I want you to look around. And I want you to stop and say, Thank you, God. This is unbelievably incredible. This is beyond what time and chance could produce. This has to be the creation of the Almighty God. And why you pay any attention to us, I don't know. But thank you for loving us anyway.